Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This will be a podcast about podcasting. It was inevitable that someday I would have to do one. Podcasting has become a real cultural phenomenon. As I record this, in August 2021, there are 2,306,702 podcasts listed in the Apple Store, more than 54,811,775 episodes of these podcasts are available for download. Given the scale of what's out there, I'm grateful for my core group of 10,000 or so regular listeners who have found their way to FRDH and to the small but loyal group who make donations at www.goldfarbpod.com. But while the numbers seem overwhelming, there is another statistic to put them in perspective. Three-quarters of those podcasts have not put up a new episode in the last 90 days. This underscores a basic fact of podcasting. The price of entry is low. Uh, the cost to the ego of being ignored is high. The effect of podcasting on the two organizations for whom I have done most of my broadcast work, NPR and the BBC, cannot be underestimated. The managers of both institutions and media reporters have been aware for decades that their listenership is growing older. The first article I remember seeing about the phenomenon was way back in 1989 or 1990, lying on a windowsill in the London Bureau of NPR. It was a long Washington Post feature headlined, The Graying of NPR. When I left the network in 1999 to work for its Boston affiliate, the average listener age was 49, my age precisely at the time. Today it is 56. Not my age precisely anymore, but a useful mark of management failure to bring in Generation Next. At BBC Radio 4, the Beeb's flagship speech radio station, and the one closest to NPR in terms of output, the average listener age is also 56. And that can't just be a coincidence. For both institutions, podcasting has become the last best hope to avoid the geriatric ward and then the funeral home. Enormous amounts of management time and effort, as well as money, have been thrown at podcasting in the hopes of enticing Generation Next to the kind of programming NPR and the BBC do. A quick word about the similarities and dissimilarities between the two organizations. The BBC and NPR, shielded from market pressures because of the way they are funded, developed a unique range of programming. The BBC is almost as old as broadcasting itself. It was initially set up as a private enterprise by the makers of radios in Britain nearly a century ago, in the early 1920s, when radio sets first became widely available. Why would people buy them if there was nothing to listen to? The British Broadcasting Company provided the programming. Eventually, the government, which kept a hold of the radio spectrum, decided it was probably best if it kept a hold of what was broadcast on that spectrum. The British Broadcasting Company became the British Broadcasting Corporation, funded by the government, but independent of direct government supervision. Every home that owned a radio had to pay a license fee to operate it. This fee went directly to the BBC, which embarked on a decidedly highbrow, in the Edwardian sense, view of its mission, and has evolved over the last century into a broad church behemoth. NPR's origins and funding are different. 
Its beginnings are too complicated and, frankly, dull. They lie within the Broadcasting Act of 1967, a great society bill that established public funding mechanisms for educational broadcasting. Today, NPR is a program maker for a network of 800-plus stations around the U.S., many of their broadcast licenses held by universities. The stations fundraise for themselves and pay dues to a program maker in Washington, originally called National Public Radio, but now rebranded to NPR, which provides news and current affairs and a little cultural programming to each station. NPR gives a corporate identity to the system. My sign-off in Boston used to be from WBUR, your NPR news station. Listeners tend not to spend too much time making a distinction about the various program sources they are listening to. It's all NPR. NPR receives no direct funding from the government. In recent years, member station dues have been equaled by corporate sponsorship. Public radio is a remarkably fragmented setup, not as consolidated as the BBC, so it's hard to come up with a single number to capture its revenue from listener donation and corporate sponsorship and other sources. But say the total revenue raised by all the stations is about a billion dollars. And for NPR itself, dues and corporate sponsorship comes to around $270 million. That's a fraction of the BBC's budget for radio. But NPR's total output is minuscule in comparison to the BBC. In any case, NPR has been able to leverage its leadership position on a certain kind of intelligent, well-produced audio programming, or content, as it's called in the world of podcasting, to dominate this form. In the U.S., seven of the 15 most downloaded podcasts are NPR or NPR-distributed programs, many of them long-established shows like This American Life, and a few new ones created out of old ones. NPR News Now, the most downloaded NPR podcast, is basically the the top-of-the-hour newscast, sent out via the web and called podcast. I used to love getting spots into the newscast. More people listened to them than the actual daily news magazines, like All Things Considered and Morning Edition. They were short, to the point, and urgent. Real news. But NPR's podcasts are really recycled programming that already exists. The most downloaded or listened to original podcast is The Daily, the New York Times podcast. Launched in 2017, many on its production team were drawn from public radio's ranks. Its creation was part of Times CEO Mark Thompson's reimagining of the Grey Lady as a multimedia, multi-platform digital operation with news at its core. Thompson's previous job was as director general of the BBC, and in its range of features and innovations, the Times of today is more of a cousin to the BBC than NPR. The difference, of course, is the public funding. New York Times, BBC, NPR are all major news organizations, and that, more than anything, is what drives podcasting. It is, I think, why many people talk about podcasting. These big media institutions put money into the platform, not just production of content, but geeing up interest via features about podcasts and deploying market research teams to find out what the audience in the podcast space really wants to hear. Podcast space. Every new platform needs its own jargon to make it seem distinctive. 
How else can you raise lots of corporate cash to fund expansion? The question is, why do the big news organizations want to spend the time and money developing podcasting? And the answer goes back to the search for Generation Next. The hope was to open the door to news consumption. Podcasts about true crime, writing injustices, like the breakthrough podcast Serial, produced by This American Life, is what news organizations are trying to emulate. The question is, is it news? A recent survey by CNN, whose Five Things podcast is similar to NPR's Quick Roundup News podcasts, and also in the top 10 most popular podcasts according to PodTrack, came up with a couple of recommendations for catching the interest of Generation Next. Make the experience as easy as Netflix. The news is seen as a chore. Make it less so. Cover broader topics in your features, like race and LGBT stories. Now, that's a pretty hopeless list. Newspapers have been trying to be more like TV, to make the experience more user-friendly, Netflix, for as long as I've been a journalist. I started working at the bottom in journalism 40 years ago precisely, as a copy aide in the style section of the Washington Post. In that first year, the paper underwent a redesign to make the text-heavy layout more congenial to a generation of readers who had grown up with television. The following year, USA Today was launched, a newspaper designed to make reading like watching television. Its street-corner dispensers were even designed to look like television sets. Cover broader topics in your features. I pitched in writing features for Mike Starter's job. I had just spent five years in New York working in the theater and was able to get stories about African-American artists and out gay artists into the paper. The truth of feature writing or making features for radio is much of it depends on the interests and knowledge of individual reporters and editors. The news is a chore. Being a citizen is a chore. A well-informed citizenry is what underlies the First Amendment's free press guarantees. I don't think that the chore work of being a good citizen violates anyone's civil rights. The point is that with each new medium over the century since radio ushered in the broadcast age, the journalism business has had to adjust because potential news consumers are distracted by the more amusing programming content, as it's called in the podcast space, that is available. Very rarely are these attempts successful. In 2007, Thomas Patterson, who holds an endowed chair named after legendary Washington Post editor Ben Bradley at Harvard's Kennedy School, published research about creating the next generation of news consumers. That's another terrible bit of jargon. The paper noted that people get the news habit very young, watching their parents read a paper every day or watching the evening news with them. When I read Patterson's research, that section absolutely resonated for me. My father taught me to read the paper when I was five or six, starting with the box scores on the sports pages. We had the New York Times delivered to our door. When we moved to the Philadelphia suburbs, the Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer were delivered in the morning. The evening bulletin slapped onto the driveway around 4.30 every afternoon. We all got the habit of reading papers and watching the news. But 50 years later, the next generation of parents were not doing that, and their children 
now in their late teens and early twenties, are not reading papers or watching the news at all. The inevitable result has been newspapers going out of business and full-time journalism jobs disappearing. Mine went in 2005. Five years later, I wrote for the Pointer Institute, one of the more venerable of the institutions that study journalism, the way archaeologists study the ruins of Pompeii, about my idea of how to replace the role abandoned by a generation of parents. I wrote, When I read about another philanthropist endowing a chair of journalism, I get very angry. The money would be better spent hiring laid-off journalists to go into high schools to teach kids how to read newspapers, because the big challenge to the future of journalism isn't the web. It's that more and more people reach adulthood without the habit of reading or listening to the news. Podcasting was meant to capture that next generation, but serving up countless police procedurals, even those that undo an injustice, or stand-up comedians who have never reported a story or worked in politics doing opinion as if they had, is just not the same. And I'm in a slight state of despair about all the time and financial resources the senior managers at NPR and the BBC in particular have thrown at podcasting in the hope of creating a new audience for something more than entertainment. Because those human and financial resources were taken from the gathering of and packaging of news in a world that we all sense is on the brink of enormous change, and what that change might be, none of us know. Anyway, here's a podcasting number I really like. In America, the market for podcasts is growing fastest among older listeners. In 2011, around 14% of podcast listeners who listen to one podcast a month were over 55. Today, it's 21% of listeners, according to Edison Research. That percentage equals 24 million listeners. Now, I can't afford fancy market and analytic research, but I'm going to guess that most of my regular listeners are in that fastest-growing category. The largest segment of podcast listening is in the 12 to 34-year age range. Half of podcast listeners fall into that category. And if everyone who listens to my podcast were to talk to someone in that younger demographic about the difference between the real news and the fragmented entertain-them-first podcast version, that would be a good thing. And I would be grateful if my listeners give it a try. Send the kids my way. And your friends. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit, and while you are there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. <laughs>